0: Hey Gregory, how you doing? I'm Peachy. Great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, man. I've I've um, had fun watching you on Twitter and interacting with you <laughs> on Twitter. So,
1: yeah, me too. Likewise, you were one of my great discoveries during the pandemic <laughs>
0: uh well i hope it was a discovery for the better i hope it turns out to be for the better well um, i
1: think we have a lot of simpatico so fe- fellow travelers for sure and um i i i think it's a righteous endeavor what you're doing and thank you for <clears throat> your your witness i think it's really I want to say this at the, at the outset, and I don't, I, I don't mean, I'm not trying to be a sycophant here, but there there are a handful of people who I think are advancing the frontiers of these, the conversations that you have. And uh, it's not a huge group that I think are doing it thoughtfully, carefully, and, you know, my big thing is uh, this and shaft, you know, in a way that, you know, matches with scholarly inquiry and uh, and uh, those protocols. So
0: good job. Well, well, that that means a lot. I really appreciate that. So the, the whole premise of the podcast is, is that I just have conversations with people that I find interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and it's sort of sort of secondary <laughs> motive. <laughs> a
1: What's that? It's a good premise for a podcast.
0: Right. Right. Uh, it was all it was all melissa's idea so uh um she was like why don't you just have like a just record some conversations with friends and i was like uh okay all right and then um yeah, i uh, emailed a couple people and they were like yeah i'll do it and then uh melissa was like great okay i have like season one and two planned out and i was like what <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, she sounds
1: like a powerhouse by the way i mean uh
0: know, she is she is, yeah. If it weren't for her, I would still be uh, like writing, you know, papers on how I can know that I'm not a brain in a vat uh, for the <laughs> for the for the benefit of like 15 people who care. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> but I was sort of walking around the house like ranting it's An important
1: out. question, though. I'm, I hope it is <laughs> papers. I one would sign up uh, to to read yet another paper on the brain in the vat uh, hypothesis.
0: Well, it is important because if you're, if you are brain and vat, then none, none of this other stuff matters. Right. Right, And, and you know what? Elon Musk thinks that that's exactly what's happening. He thinks
1: we're in the simulation. So you should oh, have, him <laughs> have
0: him on the podcast. Great. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so conversations with people I find interesting. And then sort of a secondary motive of mine is like, I try to try to, Get these conversations that help frame out you know what I'm thinking through and my research and and yeah things like that, so wonderful yeah, so why don't we start with like uh for the for the benefit of the listener um just saying a little bit about uh where you work what you do, and what your interest is what what your personal experience is with evangelicalism yeah probably construed
1: yeah well <clears throat> i'll i'll um why don't I, why don't I start, uh, do it in a linear fashion, uh, as opposed to, to doing it in, in reverse order, like you, you just
0: stated, <clears throat> if
1: that's okay. Uh, it sounds
0: better than my idea. So let's do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, I was born at the evangelical hospital, uh, evangelical community hospital in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania to uh, a, an American Baptist pastor, my father, and uh, his devoted wife, my mother. My father was the pastor of the Winfield Baptist Church for 42 years and um, was the, the town parson in uh, Lewisburg and its surrounding bed community of Winfield and Sealings Grove. He had a weekly column in the newspaper. He was often called upon to be the man of the cloth at uh, at public events. And I grew up in a home in which the our whole world was church, and was uh, every conversation at every meal was suffused by this um, immersion in theological and religious language. And and I said this recently on another podcast. In my home, talking about double predestination and supra-infra and sublapsarianism was as commonplace as talking about going to the grocery store and asking uh, if they had uh, whole wheat and stock, as well as white wonder bread. I mean, it was all the same thing. And uh, my parents were really wonderful. Uh, my, my, my father was, uh, uh, Nietzsche called his father the picture of a, a country, uh, perfect picture of a country parson adorned with all the virtues of a Christian. Uh, that certainly was my, my father. And because I was in that environment I sort of became a boy Wunderkind preacher. I started preaching at a very early age. I had no business doing that. And that led me on a path to uh, a career in in evangelicalism, where at one time in my timeline, I was, you know, mentored by Carl F.H. Henry who was the first editor of Christianity Today? I knew him well. As a matter of fact, I just unearthed all of my handwritten correspondence between myself and Carl Henry from you know going on 20 years ago now. Uh, it led me into a career not as a preacher, um, but as a um, as a theologian, and I I went to uh southern seminary in louisville kentucky al moeller was i worked for al moeller i was one of his uh one of the few people that ever wound up actually doing a phd with al Um, and then i went to union university in uh in in tennessee where i was for 15 years as a uh, uh philosophy professor and then dean of the school of theology there and then I, uh, got a call from another erst there. I have like many erstwhile friends who really don't talk to me that much anymore because, uh, I've, I've, uh, I don't know. I've joined the rebel insurgency, but, uh, another one
0: of, uh, and I want to put a pin in that. That's one thing I want to talk about is the way these institutions function.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but, but please go ahead. This is fascinating. Yeah.
1: So another one of my, uh, erstwhile very dear friends was uh before before the dark times you know it's almost like (laughs) you know the the but before the eye of sauron was uh was fired up again um eric metaxas was one of my best friends and he called me and said Dinesh D'Souza has been fired as the president of the King's College in New York City, and I'm going to nominate you to be his successor, which I did not take seriously at all, because at the time, um, even though I was was at this evangelical Southern Baptist University in uh, in the South, the president there was David Dockery, and he um, he was an evangelical, but he was always trying to keep the crazies at bay. He was trying to build union into a front rank, like the Wheaton of the South. And he was, we were successful over that 15 year period. You know, We kept going up in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. We you know, did a successful $100 million capital campaign. We brought in really significant scholars all across the spectrum, both in the humanities and in the sciences, uh, there was a business school, there was a health sciences school. There, you know, it was the it was a real it was a real university, and I was happy there. And I was also in a rockabilly band, and my hair was about you know like the, it is now. Even though I was the dean of the school of theology, and I just thought there's no way the King's College is going to have any interest in me as president. Uh, I don't fit the profile. I mean, I I, I thought they would like hire. You know, former Attorney General John Ashcroft, you know, or somebody like that.
0: The but connection it, broke up. You thought they would hire former Attorney General what? John Ashcroft, somebody <laughs> like that, you know, somebody <laughs> right. like
1: you know, like a, you know, a retired senator or something, you know, because right. their their image, you know, had always been kind of very conservative, like this this syncretism of. Conservatism with with uh, Christianity. I, 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 I since figured out what you know what was actually going on, and, and why I actually wound up getting chosen because uh, you would have had to be insane to take on that challenge because it had the school had a ten million when I arrived it had a ten million dollar in cash deficit every year. Just to keep the lights on, so that was job number. You started every well, time year. out.
0: So you, so you wait. Okay, so you t- took the job. Yeah, I took the job. I became the. Oh, I didn't. I had. I did not. I'm not familiar with this part of your history. uh yeah, So was, you, I, you succeeded Dinesh D'Souza as president of the King's College.
1: Yeah, isn't that crazy? Um, And so I, my idea, my idea coming. This
0: wasn't that long ago.
1: I didn't, how do I not
0: not know this? Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. It's um, I, there were, there were apparently, you know, a good number of candidates, but I went into the finalist interview and I'll, I'll leave out who the other, there were like, I think three other finalists. So I was one of the four and I flew to New York City and I went to this interview, and there was like uh, 20 people in the room, including Rich and Helen DeVos, the founders of Amway, the uh, parents of uh, Dick DeVos, and uh, whose daughter-in-law was uh, Betsy DeVos. They were in the room. There were all these like well-known evangelical, you know, philanthropist heavyweights that were in the room. And I talked for two two hours about what I would change about about the sort of the, the way kings would kings would look. And I, when I got done, I thought, well, this is the last time I'll ever see these people. So I headed for the. Uh, you know, so, did
0: you, so did you go into it with a mentality like? okay, if they're not going to let me do these things, then I don't want the job anyway. So you just sort of said what you well, actually wanted. I,
1: I, I'm, I am a high sensation seeking individual. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, so you kind of went into this just like I for just, giggles.
1: Uh, this, this is, I, everybody told me it's the poison chalice. Don't drink from it. But <laughs> I but I just, so, uh Yes, I was not taking it seriously. I didn't think it was going to happen. And what I got, by the time I got to the elevator, the the most prominent uh, woman other than the devoirs on the board, uh, who that's a story for another time and who I will not tell um, uh, on this podcast uh, unless my lawyer was present. But <laughs> she stuck her hand in the elevator, and as the doors were closing. And she said, wait, don't go anywhere. A miracle just happened. And I said, oh, my gosh, what happened? And she said, my husband has never gone more than 20 minutes in the past 30 years without going out for a smoke break. And he sat in that room and listened to you talk for two hours about the future of the King's College. She's like, you're the guy. So I was like, the doors started closing again. And I said, well, you know what? Salvador Dali said, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. Boom. And I thought, <laughs> I really caught that was the last time. And then the next day they said, you're the finalist. You're the unanimously, you know, agreed upon person. So they said, you have to move, like start next week. Um, and uh, so I did, and it was crazy because of this. Because the the uh, it's the only it was the only thing of its kind. It was in New York City. Um, it was originally in the Empire State Building, and it was funded by Campus Crusade for Christ and Bill Bright, but they had pulled out, and so there was this massive financial deficit, and it was Sisyphusian. In other words, the college actually, the faculty, most of them were pretty great, and that it was a politics, philosophy, and economics core curriculum, which I thought was a great idea. Um, but, uh, and a lot of the, there were really remarkable students, you know, that came because they were taking the risk on coming to a small school in New York city, but they wound up, many of them wound up doing really remarkable things. So in my mind, I could justify, okay, if I can, if I can just hang in here, eventually, people die (laughs) on the board and then we'll change it over like long-term over time. But last thing, and then I'll uh, shut up and I'll say where I am now and what I'm doing. Uh, But then Donald Trump appeared like a toxic nuclear cloud over Guam. And I would like standing on the West coast, I could see it coming, drifting in to the mainland. And I thought, oh, th- there's gonna be another storm that's gonna push it away and it'll never make landfall. Like, and, and I can't describe how all of us at that time were just, you know, sort of, I would call rational evangelicals that were in positions of leadership at the time pre-Trump. Like I had, I had a uh, conversation with Russell Moore in New York City. He was on Anderson Cooper the night before the election in 2016. And he was like, there is no way, there is no way Trump is going to win. It's impossible. It's going to be, it's going to be Hillary. He even got a call from Mike Pence while I was sitting there. And and what I gathered from it was that Mike Pence didn't think that they were going to win either. So, um, but I already knew that m- most of my donors at Kings were all in for Trump. They all were, uh, with with maybe one exception of somebody who was, you know, uh, maybe kind of neutral, but still would have voted for Trump, but maybe not enthusiastic. But all of them, I just saw it was like uh, like a it was like a cult. It was like Benny Hinn going touch and people falling over in the stadium.
0: Blow the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, um, and we were all just in shock that now it was not, we thought we were leaders of institutions and what we found out was we weren't leaders of anything that the, that the, the vast majority of people who, you know, were our constituency were way, 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 way further out there than than we were.
0: And the constituency, I just had a conversation with an historian where that came up. Right. Because that's it's like, look, we've got to go with constituency or our funding dries up.
1: That's it. That's it. And so, so I knew, I knew it was, it's over, it's over at this point. Like my plan to, you know, it's like survivor outwit outlast outplay, you know, these, you know, you know, people who I thought were ostensibly crazy, but, but in other ways, some nice people, but they were, they all just like fell down and, you know, kissed the ring of the beast and, um. I'm like, I'm not gonna survive. And then when Charlottesville happened, I was like, I gotta get out. And so, um, you know, by the summer of 2017, I, I told <clears throat> the then chair of the board, I was like, I'm not gonna do this, I, I'm quitting. And say, so well, you can't quit. And I said, yes, I can. I said, I'm not even on a contract. I mean, I was I the only thing I ever had as the president of the King's College was a letter of intent to hire me. That's it. So I said, no, no, I'm not obligated to do anything, but I agreed to stay on uh, through um, through the beginning of 28 through the, you know, academic year of 2017, 2018 to make sure that they didn't lose all of their donors that I had cultivated. I had raised like $50 million in that five-year period. Um, and um, I, uh, I said, well, I'm just not going to be involved in this. I don't want to, in the evangelicalism, if this is what it is, I, I'm out. So um, I now am in senior leadership at uh, New York Academy of Art in Tribeca in New York City, which is the school that Andy Warhol started to teach Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, and Kenny Schaaf how to draw.
0: And that's, that's, that's quite a change of venue.
1: Yeah. I, I have one of my dear friends who's a, my favorite songwriter and is the, the, the leader of rum and candle band said, you were on a bullet train going 180 miles in one direction. And you saw the train tracks broken you know, in front of you, and you did a backflip onto another bullet train heading the opposite direction at 180 miles. So I feel very, yeah, I feel very lucky to be alive and to have survived because I was, I was on, I was in the inner circle of the people that put Trump in office. As a matter of fact, I went, I went, went to a meeting at Trump Tower in the run-up to the uh, election, and it was pitched to me by Jay Richards, who's at Catholic University in, in Washington, D.C., as a, uh, a meeting for never-Trumpers.
0: In Trump uh, Tower.
1: At Trump Tower with Trump and Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, what's well, so going through your head it. at that point? What's going through your head at that point?
1: Oh, what's, going, what's going through my head is that this is, I'm really getting what I bargained for in my high sensation seeking individual. <laughs> you know, like, like my, my, my death wish, you know, I'm an existentialist. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to watch this, uh, you know, you know how satisfying it is to watch a thunderstorm that, that's the way it that's the way it felt like to see the lightning crackling and you know you just hope that you're not your own house isn't gonna get hit, but that's the way I, I I thought, but at that time still it never dawned on us that this was actually going to work like he was gonna actually get he was gonna actually become the president of the United States so,
0: so it's sort of um it sounds like there's a sublimity to the experience like before before the the fact that like this is the reality like said yeah 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 just it it just it is it is it totally escaped like the manifold of comprehension and it was like all consuming in this way (laughs) uh and then and then (laughs) and then it's like oh wait these people are making policy now
1: yeah well yeah and i was like oh there's no way i'm gonna be able to I, i can't good conscience go to these people that have been giving all this money to keep, you know, the doors of the school I was president of open and pretend like, I don't think that this is antichrist. I'm not going to be able to do that. I just, that, so I was like, I, I have to, I have to, I have to quit. And it made I mean, a lot of people very angry and it was perplexing to why would you ever quit? There has to be some other nefarious reason. It was Like, no, I have all the receipts. I have all my, Emails, you know, um, that's that's what happened. And so now, in addition to I mean, in in addition to, you know, I'm in the art world now. So I'm completely out. I'm completely outside of that system now. So I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't have to protect anything. So I'm free now to just say, yeah, it was white Christian nationalism, you know, all along. Uh, And it just became, you know, I described it in an interview that I did with the Rolling Stone on why evangelicals worship Donald Trump. It's, you know, I knew deep down that white nationalism was a was a latent DNA feature in evangelicalism. Uh, And it, it, it was awakened. It was awakened in a new way. And by Trump, and then it just became, it became systemic. Uh, you know, In it, it, just uh, what it just needed a little crack to, to go through, and then it was like it broke through the whole dam that was holding that back. There were many actors that were trying to pretend like this is not what this is really all about. Blah 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 blah. You know. Oh, and but then it, ostensibly. It always was, and that's what it is now, and it it ain't gonna change. So yeah, it
0: sort of, it sort of came full circle, right? Because you've got sort of conservative white evangelicals being kind of—I I mean, I guess the way the story—it's obviously it's more complicated than this, right? But uh, being sort of politically agnostic, uh, at least sort of on the on the public-facing side of things, with respect to like national politics. And then what, what sort of energizes the base is finally the, the, you know, the justice department says, all right, we're like, we're going to take away, we're going to go after your tax exemption. If you keep trying to subvert attempts at integration and they say, Nope, you're not doing that. And, and so that, that's sort of what got the movement started at a national level. That's right. Uh, Or at least I should put it. That's what motivated, uh, the initial actors who ended up developing sort of this national movement. Correct. Yeah. And then yeah, it's and sort it, of really, and, a full circle.
1: That was the, uh, I mean, this is well established uh, as we know, but there was a very, very quick pivot in the national evangelical movement. From 19, you know, the Jesus movement of the 70s, which I I wrote a biography of the Pied Piper of the Jesus movement, Larry Norman, who invented the genre of Christian rock for Random House. Um, Between that era of that kind of people, uh, Billy Graham, who was burned by Nixon and said, I'm out of politics. I'm not going to talk about politics. And then, you know, what did evangelical look like in 1976? Jimmy Carter. I mean, it looked like Jimmy Carter. And then by 1979, with the advent of the moral majority, they realized that this segregation thing wasn't going to be the thing that they could actually lead with to get people involved. And that's when they figured out that abortion could be the thing that would rally people. And um, that's, that's the thing that created these co-belligerencies, and for the first time, I think you had said, said on, on Twitter a, a while ago, just a couple of weeks ago, about how the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the, it was called the Christian Life Commission, now the ERLC, was, had a basically pro-abortion position.
0: Oh, there, in, was, there was a resolution Yeah, at right. the Southern Baptist Convention in yeah, the in 1970, early 70, yeah. yeah, 1973.
1: I mean, most, I, I mean, again, um, th- this is, it's such an instructive history because my mentor, erstwhile mentor, Carl Henry, presided over a conference of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. And he edited a book and wrote the leading essay in which uh, they took up, one of the things that they took up was the issue of abortion. It was a pro choice position. This was in 19, 19- 72 maybe um i I have to go back and check the date on it norman geisler who you know became the founder of the evangelical theological society Um, nobody's liberal you know and nobody's liberal i mean as arch conservative as it gets first edition of his christian ethics textbook in the early 70s pro-choice because he was like well um the the view of of Irenaeus uh, is that the, the image of God in Aquinas is that the image of God is reason. So until reason is a part of what a human being is, it's not human.
0: That's Uh, I didn't. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. That's fascinating because that's actually roughly Peter Singer's argument. Obviously the references to God, right? That's Peter Singer's argument for for infanticide.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He, he that,
0: thinks you should be allowed to kill people until they're like two.
1: And, and so that's what gave I'm so glad to talk to somebody who cares about this stuff because it, in my daily life now, like people just like they would never in a billion years even talk about religion, but they would just like glaze over, if you know, right. to, to, to hear about this. But it's it's very interesting that um, that that you bring up the the Peter Singer thing, because. That is the very thing that caused people like George Grant, you know, who started Franklin classical school in Tennessee. He wrote a book and he, he said, look at all these compromised evangelicals like Carl Henry. And like, he went back chapter and verse to show he was trying to build this. This was part of building the new right wing evangelical movement that has, that carried the field. Um, you know, his, his thing was, you know, there was this corruption at the heart of, of the neo-evangelical project. And we need to, we need to expunge those people that, that think in these rational categories and go this much more theologically, um, you know, strict and doctrinaire interpretation on the abortion issue. And then once the abortion, issue, you had, the, you had for the first time co-belligerency between the evangelicals and the Catholics, what Timothy George called the ecumenism of the trenches. And then Richard John Newhouse wrote the Naked Public Square in, in 1984, and bang. It was like a Cambrian explosion. You know, that created a new in the in evangelical or in evolutionary paleontology. It's what Stephen Jay Gould called punctuated equilibrium. In a very short period of time, bang, an entire new species of evangelical uh, arose. It's just people like me that grew up in the Northeast, I, I kind of still thought that evangelicalism was Billy Graham. I was just naively thought that that's kind of what it was. And it
0: wasn't. And and so I mean a couple of threads come to mind here, and I'm I'm interested to get your thoughts uh, on, on this. I thought we were going to talk about art, but which we can. But but this but, but no, <laughs> yeah, this is great because what what I, what I knew about, to talk about art. That's well, funny. no, so what I knew about you coming in was that you wrote a book about Larry Norman, and that you and that you're you know you have interests in in art and so on. I I but there's this part of your biography I just didn't know about because uh, I've known you that long. Um, But yes, so a couple of threads come to mind here, Um, one of which is that so that originally I think I think the idea of co belligerency was framed as like, look, conservative evangelicals have these things in common with like culturally conservative Catholics and uh, members of the Jewish community. And we can despite, you know, these theological differences, we can all get together and, you know, form this sort of voting block. And then sort of along the way, what ended up happening was you get like you know, neoliberal economics and people who have no interest in, you know, you'd be complete atheist. Right. Um, And elements of like social Darwinism, which ironically was the original evangelical concern about evolutionary biology was social Darwinism. And now that's just like baked in. Um, And uh, uh, yeah. And so then meantime, you've got guys like, you know, you and me who sort of, we were naively like, I don't know, taking the Bible seriously. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, and then we, we what? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then we see, it's like, wait a second. So there, there's uh, sort of the folks that have nothing to do like with Christianity whatsoever, uh, have sort of like, they've exercised a whole lot of influence here. Right. And the thing is going in directions that, um, Seem to be at odds with our understanding of the way things were supposed to be growing up, and now actually analyzing the whole thing, it's like you start to see where there were uh, elements of hierarchical thinking, and look, I mean, white supremacy sort of built into the theology. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so it, it's it's not as yeah. though these political people sort of took over and are put like it, it was. <laughs> It was there the yeah, whole time.
1: It's a, it's a part of it, it's it's a, it's not a bug; it's a feature. Right. That that's what I that's what I saw. And speaking of, you, you described exactly what my donor base was at Kings. Is that there were all of these sort of like uh, libertarian atheist people that you know were were giving. It was like these two weird worlds that were entwining this sort of atheistic libertarianism with theocratic, um, conservative, evangelical Christianity. And and, uh, there was a fusion that that took took place there. And um, it's part of the reason why I wanted to write a book about Larry Norman was that, you know, he was somebody that that saw this stuff coming from from a long way off and was concerned that the that the white evangelical church was racist, that it was pro war, that uh, it was <clears throat> uh, not about the things that Jesus talked about, which was, you know, you know, sell all you have and give your money to the poor, feed the poor. Like, this is who Jesus was. And yet you've replaced him with this Christ of your own fashioning who has absolutely nothing to do with Yeshua of Nazareth who got the whole thing going to begin with, you know.
0: Right. Hmm. So- what are your thoughts on the, the possibility? At, so, so I guess one, one, thing I, one thing that makes me hopeful on the days that I'm hopeful about uh, things on the institutional level is that you've got, I mean, you described it perfectly when you said like, now that you're outside of that world, you're free to comment on things um, in a way that you weren't before. And I, I think that there are, uh, there's a significant and growing number of uh, scholars, I mean, you know, folks outside of academia, but since since academia is what I know, uh, a, a group of scholars who are interested in uh, this set of concerns who are themselves either evangelical or grew up in those circles and who are not beholden to any evangelical institutions yeah. who are writing accessible level work to yes. call all of this stuff into question.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, and that and and so for that reason, there's probably not a week that goes by that I've been, you know, I've been in in some capacity in higher education for the past twenty three years. And much, you know, much of that with the exception of the past four years, was, was in sort of this Christian world. And there's not a week that goes by, or maybe a month, but a couple of weeks for sure, that I don't hear from uh, a former student of mine, because I was a philosophy professor. They said, I really appreciate you teaching me uh, logical fallacies and teaching logic it's really come in handy (laughs) as I process through my own experience in the evangelical church. And they now want nothing to do whatsoever with this thing that they were once a part of. And because I have been able to, to be free and, and, uh, you know, point out, um, weaknesses in the system and i and i wrote this article for david dark's substack that went viral on critical k theory
0: yeah and, i want to talk about that yeah go ahead go ahead yeah,
1: yeah i mean it, that just kind of took off and then all of a sudden it became sort of like the analogy that you know I'm, I'm confident that staffers for eric swalwell and mitt romney read that article and were passing it around and then it filtered up and then they said, you know, this Republican anti-vax thing is a lot like pro wrestling. I'm like, mm, nope, <laughs> they, nobody was making that analogy last year, you know, or even a couple of months ago before I wrote this article. But
0: um, at any rate. So talk I, about that. What is what is kayfabe and how is it how is it salient?
1: Well, I grew up in, in the 1980s watching ABC's Worldwide Sports. And I actually loved boxing as as a kid. But Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran, they would like maybe fight once or twice a year. Like total, they would have maybe in their whole career, 60 or 70 matches. And I would go over to my friend Chucky's house and he watched professional wrestling. And there, the world heavyweight champion wrestled on television every week. <laughs> and there was so much more, It was you know, boxing was colorful, but wrestling was even more colorful. And most people don't remember a time, unless you're, you know, aged like I am, when uh, people, there was a real question as to whether or not wrestling was choreographed and scripted. There was a huge question in people's minds in the 70s and 80s, uh, as to whether or not these were legitimate sports
0: contests
1: or whether it, or not. It was
0: like the conversations that first graders might have about Santa Claus. Like, Correct. no, I think it's—I think he's real. No, he's not real. It was the same thing with professional wrestling. Yep. Totally.
1: And, and, and I remember, you know, vividly the, the professional wrestling industry going out of its way to keep up the um, facade and the verisimilitude that it was an actual sport and that it wasn't fake. So twenty John Stossel went to Vince McMahon promotion, WWF, you know, show at backstage, told a wrestler that I watched growing up, Dr. D. David Schultz, I think wrestling is fake. He said, oh, you think it's fake? You think this is fake? Bam! Knocked Stossel to the ground. He had hearing loss. It, it, they, it, and so this this artifice of the fact that we want you to think it's real in in terms of now it is real. People get cut. They do get hurt. You know, um, it, they, there's a punishment that they take on their body. But what I'm saying is, is it unscripted? You know, where you don't know what's going to happen or is it scripted going in? The pro wrestling leagues went out of their way to keep up that artifice and that inside the business it's called kayfabe which means that it it looks not predicted and that there are real stakes and that people are really getting injured and that there's real grudges there are actual feuds between these wrestlers and so they would make sure that the wrestlers when they left the arena if you know, the baby faces, the good guys were not hanging out and going out to get a beer with the heels. They had to stay separate to keep up the illusion. And so if a, if a hero like Dusty Rhodes or one of the Von Ericks in Texas, in Texas, it was huge. Like the, the, the heels, I mean, they would barely sometimes make it out of the arena with their lives because the audience thought it was not scripted. Now, occasionally in pro wrestling, the in, this is insider language. Right. Um, things went off script by accident. And that's, that's called a shoot. Uh, in other words, the, the, the script is broken and an actual fight breaks out or or somebody dies. And, it, and you, know, you know, there's a famous incident where... Uh, a wrestler named Owen Hart from Canada was gonna zip line in as this character called the blue blazer into the ring. And it's on live TV and the zip line snaps and he plummets to his death in the ring. And the announcers had to tell the audience that this was not a work. That's what they call a script. It's called a work, just like a work of art. It's like Mm -hmm. a play. This is not a part of the script, Owen Hart. This is a mis- this is a shoot. Owen Hart's dead. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been rushed to the hospital. So I applied that to my life in evangelicalism, where um, the key is to protect the business and to act as though all this stuff that we say is of eternal consequence is really that big a deal and that. You know, uh, you you have to believe certain things or you're going to hell or you've got to toe this line or else you're out of the camp and your soul is in internal jeopardy. And uh, and there's this massive list of of uh, uh, do's and don'ts and and um, and you constantly kind of you've got to keep keep up with it. Because it's constantly changing as to what is included now as the things I have to believe or not have to believe. So you keep adding stuff on like, you know, only only men in leadership in the church or, you know, uh, you know, gay people can't be Christians or uh, you can't have empathy. Empathy is now a sin, according to. You know, it, you just—it's constantly you're trying to keep up with
0: that man. That that
1: is and 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 it, to me, it's the you know, if you ever went off script, if I was in that system, if you went off script, you would get you would get someone coming after you saying, essentially like what the pro wrestling, uh, you know, executives would say to talent: "Are you trying to hurt the business?" You're trying to hurt the business. You're exposing what goes behind the curtain. And I know what goes behind the curtain because I, if anyone, I went as far as you could go in institutional evangelicalism. I mean, as deep in, I know all the names. I was in all of the rooms. I was part of all the conversations. At the end of the day, these people don't act like they're St. Anthony of the desert, you know, and like everything is in the balance. They drive around luxury in their luxury cars. They have their, you know, $500 fountain pen collections. They, you know, they, they, they eat, they eat like, uh, they eat like there's no tomorrow um you know it, it's it's it's, a, it's they don't touch alcohol in in front of the cameras well sometimes they do they just don't tell mm. you true but you know it's it but that's a part of the kayfabe it, it's it, it's this is a work this is this it it looks like it is it is um life and death but really this is just a business this is a business and this is what we do and you know you have to you have to come to grips with that. And people get very angry with me. Who are you to you know judge somebody's motivations? I'm just saying anecdotally. Uh, you know I've seen what I've seen, and I know what I know. You know how, you can't. How do you, you can argue with my experience? Like you can. I'm not. If you want to say that this is all stuff that uh, you deeply, deeply believe to to your core. Um, you probably would live differently than, than what you do. And this is, by the way, this is one of the things that, um, that got, uh, you know, there are these reality tests that people inside evangelicalism do occasionally, and it gets them into trouble. So for example, 15 years ago, maybe there's this guy named David Platt. He was the one that got into trouble with he brought Trump on stage at his church, McLean Bible church. And I think right. it's and Trump came out and then people criticized him because. And the reason why they didn't fit is David Platt wrote this book called radical, uh, you know, umpteen years ago. And it was like, if you're serious about Jesus preaching about taking care of the poor and making sure the nations hear about Christ, you know, uh, You're not going to live, you're not going to drive around Volvos and you're not going to, you're going to, you're going to make as much of your income uh, available as possible for poverty relief and for, you know, world humanitarian efforts and ruffled a lot of feathers because he was, he was challenging them to get out of kayfabe and go shoot. And um, you can't keep, I mean, you can't keep that up in evangelicalism. Eventually you're going to, you're going to be spewed out of the system. So David Platt became the president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, this largest missionary sending agency in in the world. And and what he he lasted, like, like me, a couple of years. And then, you know, just like, you know the institution spits anybody that, that like that out of the out of the system
0: so how do you think the folks who keep the kfab going how do you think they justify it to themselves is it the constituency it, i mean
1: everybody likes health insurance right
0: right oh okay okay so you've got okay so you've got your rank and file um let's say uh, faculty member at an evangelical institution of higher education. And yeah. maybe they maybe they teach in a field where like they don't actually have to go out and promote patriarchy or whatever. So yeah. they just kind of like and they yeah, they they've got kids, they've got a mortgage. Um like I, I get that. I, I but like folks in administration who either who, who have training like in um ancient languages who know how to read the Hebrew scriptures right who know that like it's not it's simply not the case that the only valid way to interpret the first few chapters of genesis is that the earth was created in six 24 hour periods like they know that right yeah and 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 yet and they're and they're in positions of power right they're not just rank and file they're in the industry like how do they justify to themselves the fact that they they know that they're gonna like uh you know, fire somebody who goes out and says, "Well, you know, maybe like theistic evolution is is legit." Um, h- how do they do that? <laughs> do you think what what story do they tell themselves about what they're doing?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, it's psychosis. It's a kind of psychosis because it's it's a flight from reality. That is the definition of psychosis. You, a, a psychotic person will will eventually have moments of lucidity in which they realize you know um you know i just went outside onto the sidewalk with a sandwich board saying that barack obama is the antichrist that's probably not true like they might have a moment of lucidity and yet that's what ideology is. That's the way Slavoj Zizek just de- defines ideology. I know and, it's wrong, but it, I do it, it anyway. Well, it actually, it's Marx. It's actually Marx who who said, you know, ideology is they do not know why they are doing it, but they are doing it anyway." It, it ideology has this sway to it that it it's it's compulsive behavior. Why does it? Uh, like I have, a, I, my best friend is OCD. Okay, uh, he's an artist. You want to talk about art? Here's an example. My my best friend Jonathan Paul Gillette is uh, battles with OCD, and he several years ago became fascinated by Bob Ross. Uh, like a lot of people are, you know, the happy puffy clouds. The guy of the you oh, know-
0: oh oh, I know. I've got a Bob Ross calendar here. Yeah. My- okay.
1: Wait. Bob, okay. <laughs> Bob
0: Ross. So
1: he was interested in the in Bob Ross was teaching how to paint on TV and he had like a non-accredited school that people could go through like learn the Bob Ross method. So he did a study because he was OCD has anyone ever graduated from Bob Ross's program that could actually paint like Bob Ross? And the answer is of course no. Bob Ross is a master. Nobody can do what he does as quickly as he does. It was it was Impossible for anyone to actually learn how to paint from Bob Ross, but they liked watching it happen. So, but he, my friend Johnny, took this seriously. So he took one of Bob Ross's most famous paintings called Mountainside Summit and he painted it 64 times until he got it brush stroke for brush stroke, exactly like the original mountainside summer. Okay. Now that an OCD person, if I talked to Johnny, he would say, I have a problem. I know I have a problem. This is a psychological condition that I have. I I shouldn't have to wash my hands, you know, religiously before and after I pick up a book from my bookshelf, you know, he knew that it was he was it was a psychosis at work, and yet he was doing it. That's the only way that I can describe why people act in, in this way is that they're tra- trapped trapped in, in a um a psychotic order that um and if they get too close to it, and this is also Zizek, the sublime object of, of ideology, the closer you get to the sublime object, the more it looks like um uh crap i won't use the 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 word the closer you get to it so you got to stay far away back from it and i i think that idiot you know that that lacanian understanding of why people would they deep down know better and yet they see where their environment, their context, their paycheck, their privilege, their standing is related to this thing. Like but here's a granular example. When, when I was working for Al Mohler, he thought that six day, 24 hour creationists were crazy. And he would cite B.B. Warfield and, you know, other great, you know, worthies of the, you know, um, I'm not saying that he was full, he was full board on with, you know, know, Darwinian evolution, but he thought that the earth was, you know, the universe was, you know, billions of years old. He would cite Augustine on, you know, to, to back him up on this. And then I was shocked a couple of years later when he was like talking to Time magazine, defending Ken Ham, you know, and like going full on creation creation science. What changed? Um, You know, why was, again, to to cite Al, why was he pro-women in ministry when he was, before he was president of Southern Seminary, and then when he came back as president, he's now, it's like one of the tests of orthodoxy.
0: And he's got a whole story about how he had a conversation with Carl F.H. Henry, and that sort of changed his mind like an origin story for how he came to endorse patriarchy
1: i i um i have my doubts as to whether or not that actually happened because i've talked about (laughs) i knew carl henry too and i asked him about that and he you know he he uh he had just you know disciples phd students that were egalitarian who you know so you know maybe carl henry spoke out of both sides of his mouth. I don't, I don't know. But we always find a reason to stay kayfabe. That's my point. You know, you want to keep the business going. So you will, how do we keep the storyline? You know, how do we extend this storyline? So it, it's it's a combination of these powerful currents of ideology to which we're all subject. I'm not saying it's... it. It's it it exists on the left too. Um, it, it's uh, I, it it is the structural condition of you, you know it's a psychological condition of humanity, and that's why people go to psychoanalysis It's to try to attenuate these, these psychoses and these hysterias. Um, but the hysteria comes from the fact that they're trying to reach something beyond the big other, Lacan's big other, and it's not given anything back to them. <laughs> so yeah. so you go with you go with what you know, which is, if I walk away from this, what am I gonna do?
0: exactly and you and and so like um I think one. So here's another kind of like a stark example, right? So if you grow up, say, in the antebellum South on a plantation, uh, in a family that like owns a plantation, right? Yeah. Um, Then you are accustomed to having other people uh, do all of your work for you, do all of your chores for you, serve you meals, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a, I mean, you basically, you've got a couple of options, right? You can look around and say, wow, this is really messed up. This is really unjust. Um, my parents are, you know, kind of bad people, and my grandparents were kind of bad people um, for, you know, uh, perpetuating the system. Or you can say, no, this is as it should be. I deserve this. Yeah. Uh, and, And the costs of questioning this whole system, I mean, if you're setting aside the epistemic issues around motivated reasoning and how difficult it is to overcome all of that, if you manage to get to the point where you recognize that the system is messed up, the social costs of actually sort of rejecting the system can be potentially very high and catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, from experience, (laughs) right. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And what, but what I see in uh, conservative evangelicalism is that you've got this whole ideology and they have pressed the resources of Christian theology into the service of this ideology that is ultimately anti-Christian.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yep. Correct. Correct.
1: Correct. But it's, it's, it's really when you're so far deep into it, uh, you, you, to walk your way out of underland to use a Lewis Carroll reference. It's it's, is it crazy down there? Yes. Is it illogical? Yes. Do impossible things have to add up if you're in wonderland, Alice in wonderland? Yes. Do I want to go back? No. (laughs) (laughs) Do do I want to go to the, the real world where, you know, The Mad Hatter's ravings uh, are, you know, they put him in a mental ward. No, he's my friend. You know, it's like, (laughs) so uh, it's, uh, there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. That's why, um, that's why, you know, someone like a Nietzsche was such a threat because Twilight of the Idols, you know, to, to To say that there may not be this outward structure that you think is, explains everything, is an unthinkable thought. You just couldn't live with, you couldn't live without it.
0: Yeah, Uh, so part of what keeps the kayfabe going is the sort of existential angst. I mean, in addition to all the material concerns and the social concerns, there's like, well, how do I think about the world? Yeah,
1: I mean that's why you get this. I mean, that's where the origin of all this worldview claptrap started. Is like I have to find a linguistic system through which I constantly talk about these are the implications of a biblical worldview. It's it's a way of self-soothing, of of saying, I'm not crazy. There's this whole, there's this whole. Um, you know, structure, it's this kind of structuralism that, uh, that you constantly have to be keeping in place. Uh, the, the great sociologist writing about this was Zygmunt Bauman, who's up in years now, but he, he, he talked about the world in which we live in and, and this book's about, you know, 15 or 20 years old now but it's still very insightful, called it Liquid Modernity. He said we live in liquid modernity in which it takes more and more effort for us to keep our life or our beliefs in shape. And um, when things are liquid, it takes constant effort to keep them in shape. So if you're running an institution or an organization that depends upon, you know, religion, which the Latin word means "religio" means to bind, you have to have things that bind together everything, or else you lose what you've got. And uh, so you gotta, you've got to constantly be developing language around how do we. How do we keep control over the situation? And that's that's what leads people like John Piper or, uh, you know, the Gospel Coalition guys to say things that now that Twitter exists, people say that's crazy. Like I, mean, I can't believe do you, do you hear yourself talking? It's like the thing I retweeted the other day. It's like Ben Shapiro's little gaggle of dudes that you know one of them's like saying well Barack Obama killed rock and roll he said he said you can't do rock and roll anymore because rock and roll is all about white male angst and they're like yeah you're right dude yeah rock and roll's dead because you can't be angry as a white man anymore i'm like uh chuck berry rock and roll's about white male angst are you kidding do you hear yourself talking but they they have this narrative that they have to keep up to self-soothe so that they can, you know, it's a their grift can keep going, you know. Um and listen, it works. I mean, I wish it didn't, but you know, um I remember when Larissa Hawkins at Wheaton College put on the hijab during Ramadan and my board chair at, at at the King's College was like, it's like, you know, we cannot have anything to do with 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 Islam, and he rejoiced. He rejoiced when, um, uh, you know, Phil at, at Wheaton, uh, the president fired her. It was like a bloodletting, as David Dark says, cults demand sacrifices. You just have to. I mean, was it really that big a deal? I mean, if you know Larissa Hawkins, she could have easily signed Wheaton's statement of faith without any mental reservation. It wasn't like she inherited it. So anyway, that's, I mean, that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm doing. I mean, I, my, I, uh, I'm working on various different you know, projects. I'm writing a, a spiritual biography of Karl Marx. That's not a joke. Um, and uh, that's is that my, with
0: is that with Erdman's?
1: Yes, it's in that Religious Lives uh, series. Um, and uh, <laughs> someone on uh, someone on Twitter had said, you know, all these Southern Southern Baptists are saying. The right-wingers are completely, you know, not that I'm Southern Baptist, but you know, they're all, all saying that the great fear is that, you know, this is, this is sneaking in Marxism into the evangelical church. And it's like, no, that's not true. None of these professors at any of these seminaries have a Marxist agenda. And then somebody said after I announced I was doing that, I was like, Gregory Thornberry, this is his academic equivalent of hold my beer. <laughs> that's
0: great that's
1: great so anyway it's been really fun talking to you um and uh maybe we can do it again maybe next time we can actually talk about art Um, no i
0: was gonna say i would love to do this again this has been this has been most enjoyable
1: well me too i think we're fellow travelers i can't wait to meet you in person and uh and melissa too and if you ever find yourself in gotham city uh you know I, uh, I officially owe you a drink if you partake. And if not, uh, we can oh, I do a, indeed a meal. And uh, um, as Barbara Walters used to say in her sign off as anchor for 2020, you're in touch. So we'll be in touch. <laughs>
0: That's great. Uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. So we will have to do it again sometime uh, for the podcast and otherwise.
1: Okay, let's yeah. do it.
0: All right.